Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Super excited to have the one and only Vimvik Ramswamy on today. I know, it's going to be fantastic. We have a stacked show lined up today. We're covering a lot with Vivek, so I can't wait to get into it. Let's go. Crazy how it goes. <laughs> how about that Western Alliance rumor this morning? That was nuts, right? Oh, yeah, crazy. They were Basically, they said they're going out of business, and then they said, uh, no, we're not, and we're suing the Financial Times. <laughs> <laughs> so. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to the new world, right? You know what I mean? Just lawsuits getting thrown around. Oh, gosh. Insane. Insane. Oh. Gosh, you know, and, and, and energy, obviously. Scott, how you doing, man? Uh, you, you know, what, what do you make of this? This tape is uh, like it's been incredible. It's it's been a tough, uh, tough week for oil. Yeah, Scott, what are your thoughts on that move last night? That was pretty nuts, right? <laughs> or not? Anybody else's <laughs> Thomas, your thoughts on that well, move last night? You know what? I, I'm just like you know, it's just one of those things where you know, I just feel like coming back to our spaces last Friday, and I just feel you know, they got this window here of precursor to a recession, you know, how, you know, where, where we are. And I just think coming back to Warren's thoughts, I'm like, okay, listen, we're at six to eight month window of, of where fundamentals all align, you know, just is the market just saying, I, I just don't care. I'm just going to, you know, unload. And, uh, you know, there's the, there's clearly the physical market and the equities, which we're obviously much more concerned with the equities. It feels the equity camp is definitively in the, I'm not gonna wait around, wait to find out, but therein lies the opportunity, right? So it's uh, it's a, it's a tough space, it's a tough situation right now. But I think it gets interesting, especially with yield payers on the oil and gas side. You know, that's that's somewhere we we focus significantly. Where if you can get paid to wait, some of these guys are yielding quite juicy double digit yields, right? And uh, I think that's kind of you know that's your step base one, and then uh, you kind of figure it out from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as well as I do is, you know, when you're looking at these equity stocks, the drawdowns are, you know, it's a wild ride, right? <laughs> hey, Scott, are you, are you, you, you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. We, we lost, I had What's to, going I had on? to uh, ad lib, but, you know, just uh, what were you, your thoughts on, on the energy tape and, and all that is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough market right now because on the one side, fundamentals look really, really good across energy. You know, usually you have overinvestment in drilling and, you know, the drill baby drill mantra that's worked for the last 20 years. It, it, it really isn't there this time. Companies are paying back cash. They're not just they're they're basically saying we're going to pay you out our returns instead of growing, which, which we're fine with because we haven't gotten returns of capital. All we've gotten was promised returns of capital the last 20 years, but now you're looking at a slowing economy. So it's kind of like you're playing cute right now. The economy seems to be slowing slower than people expect. Like you look at the bond market thinks the feds going to be cutting rates within like a month or two. That means something is going wrong, right? Cause inflation is still high. So the market is looking for weakness. If that is elongated, which we think it will be, it might. It's going to take some time because the consumer is still strong. Jobs, job, job uh, and wage gains are still strong. People are still employed. Usually, don't get um, recessions when people are all happily employed and money in their pocket from COVID. So, if you get this period where things are elongated a little longer, people think companies aren't drilling that much and demand is holding up. 
that's why, you know, we had our, an economist on last week, Warren Pies. He was saying, you know, there could be a stronger pricing in commodities. The market is scared this week, you know, about economic growth, but it could it could change. So the longer we go without going into a recession, it's a tight oil market. Um, gas less so, but gas is so low. So there's an opportunity for commodities to hold in. And that just means, as we said with those yield vehicles, if they're paying 10% and prices don't go much lower, they're still paying 10%, potentially more. So you're going to just keep harvesting that 10%, which isn't so bad. Also, like something interesting that we were discussing on the last space too is that Warren Pies was saying that like the inventory builds were kind of drawing like a recession. Like we were kind of getting these inventory builds earlier in the year that were like similar to a recession. And now finally, like the EIA is putting out data that's showing we're getting these positive inventory draws each week. So it's just kind of weird that, you know, last uh, yesterday we got positive data out of the EIA, but then we also had like the Fed hiking and it just seems like the oil markets continued to sell off. So I don't know that, that that's also something interesting to watch and then if you look at the forward-looking indicators which are rig counts you do have rig counts starting to fall on like the last three months they haven't gone up and gas rig counts are starting to fall oil is companies on on earnings calls this quarter have been talking about well we're gonna um we were planning on growing this year now maybe we're not gonna grow we're just gonna drill our wells there's wells called drill but uncompleted wells they've already been drilled they just haven't started producing them. Those are the ones that companies fall back on when they don't want to spend the money to drill totally new wells. Gas companies are talking about that. So even though, so we had a build in inventories, but now we're starting to have a draw and forward-looking indicators are saying, well, these companies are not ramping up drilling at all. So that would speak to even lower supply. And the you know what's what's hurting the pricing of oil and gas and other commodities is these fears about demand. But as I said, if demand holds up, then you're in a tight market and pricing should be higher or hold in where they are. That's why we prefer to own those companies that can pay the 10% payout, even at slightly lower prices. So you don't need things to get better. You just need them to stay where they are. And you're still generating much better returns than in other parts of the market. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we saw a huge duck decline in inventory, you know, over the last two years. So that, um, that is going to be a problem, right? Because, you know, eventually if we see, especially for nat gas, gas prices this low for much longer, you know, it's going to be, you're going to have to start shutting down production, yeah, you make a good point, Tracy. Ducks are really bullish because those are the first wells that get produced. So if you don't have any ducks available, you then have to do the whole process of drilling again. And that takes six to 12 months. So that's as, as an energy investor, we're at a point where ducks are inventory of wells that haven't been completed or at all time lows compared to overall number of wells in production. And these companies are now talking about they're going to draw them down even more. So then you get to historically low inventory. So if prices increase, it doesn't mean production can just bounce back. So that speaks even higher prices, right? Because it's very it, oil demand is very inelastic. When people need it, they need it. They can't wait. So if we're not in a recession and people just need the oil and these guys have record low inventory, it just means supply is not going to respond and you got to have higher and higher prices to get people to start drilling. So that could be very, a very bullish backdrop. So it's we're in a weird spot. 
everything is very bullish from a historic perspective. It's just that demand side people are uncertain. What does demand look like? Is it falling? Is it flat? Is it increasing? So we'll we'll get more information. Yeah, and I, I think also that um, what is happening is everybody thinks, oh my God, there's going to be a global recession. It's going to be you know exactly like 2009 or 2020 without realizing that or really seeing increased demand in Asia right now. And it's completely different uh, scenario, recession scenario, if we, you know, you can argue if we are in one or are we not, or are we headed for one? But it's a completely different scenario from either one of those places. But I think the market's reacting on that feeling that it's going to be that way. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we, we've had recessions in the 70s where oil demand didn't really decline and prices held up even though you had a recession. So it doesn't mean every time you get an 08 type recession where energy markets crash. Oh, absolutely. And usually when we do see recessions, we do see that demand come back more quickly than anything else because it's relatively, again, inelastic. You know, people still have to go to work. People still have to drive their kids to school or take buses or, you know, people still have to move around. Yeah, good, great points, guys. I, you know, just that you, you overlay the 70s, which yeah, I was going to Scott, you brought up that point. And then to Tracy's point, you have you have emerging markets as a stronger consumer than we've ever seen in historical cycles. Like, it, And we're in a unique place where I think you, where the market would think, listen, recession upcoming, you know, this is what you do. You have A, the inflationary backdrop, which hasn't been uh, a feature in the last, uh, you know, several uh, bear markets going back to the 70s. And secondarily, you have the emerging markets bigger than a bigger consumer than ever before. Uh, and not just in a little, little way, in a meaningful way. Absolutely. I, by the way, I just got a message from Vivix people. He's going to be just a few minutes late. He's just finishing up a hit on uh, another TV station. So he'll just be a few minutes late, but he's coming for sure. <laughs> I'm really excited to get his, his thoughts on energy policy because I know he's very pro oil and gas. So, and he's been very outspoken about that. So we definitely have to ask him questions about his outlook on energy. Yeah, it's fun to talk to someone outspoken. I mean, he never uh, he's never at a loss for words, so it'll definitely be, be cool to talk with him about uh, what his plans for America would be on the energy front. Oh, absolutely. And in any scenario, because he's kind of outspoken on things that most other candidates aren't really talking about. And so just to get the conversation going on some of these topics is very interesting and commendable. That's a great point, Tracy. Yeah, he's a, he has a deep background in business, which I think is going to be nice for everyone listening because we're all, you know, we're from FinTwit. So uh, it's it's a topic near and dear to our heart. And he, he's been right there with us. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. A recent quote he was quoted saying, saying, we have a massive energy crisis in this country, a supply demand imbalance, which American energy companies are unable to meet because of the constraints applied to the sector, saying the ESG movement has effectively demanded that American oil companies drill for less oil than they and they frack for less natural gas. So he's saying this is causing actually the ESG movement is causing a massive supply problem. So just it'll be interesting to hear his take on more on that. And he's here. Hey, yeah, I may have to hop off. <laughs> in a little bit and then I may be able to hop back on but didn't want to uh, keep folks waiting so uh, we'll do a chat for a little bit and then I'll hop off in a few and then I'll be back perfect welcome thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate you taking out a time out of your day I know you're very busy so we'll just hop right into it 
Let's first talk a little bit about reviews on the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve raised rates by 20 bips yesterday. Signal the pause is possible at the next meeting. And you've been really outspoken about the Fed and the way they've handled the economy over the last 25 years. So in your opinion, what needs to change? Because you're one of the only you are the only candidate actually talking about this. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that we need to put the Federal Reserve back in its place by going back to just stabilizing the U.S. dollar, right? That's something that we've forgotten. We have this dual mandate based on this myth of a Phillips curve, which is really based on old data from New Zealand that says that there's a trade-off between unemployment and inflation. It doesn't apply to today, and the Fed has proved disastrous at actually executing against that. So, you know, the reality is that we're you know, able to solve this problem. It just requires restoring the Fed to stabilizing the dollar because one of the impediments to GDP growth is inefficient capital allocation and economy. When the number of minutes in an hour floats, let's say, okay, that's effectively a uh, way for people to not show up at their meetings on time. So if you have a dollar fluctuating as much as it is, that's effectively a inefficiency in capital allocation and economy, which makes that an obstacle to GDP growth as well. So I think from many vantage points, from economic growth to even the vantage point of not contributing to financial crises, which is, I think, what the Fed has actually done, I can explain how. We put the Fed back into its place with a single mandate, stabilize the dollar, Everything else follows from that. I don't think we need over 22,000 employees to do it. I think we need fewer than 2,000. That's what I would do as the next president. And I think that's one of the broader ingredients to my vision of how we get back to 5-plus percent GDP growth in this country. Excellent. Thank you. Margo, you want to take CBDC? Yeah, yeah, for sure, Vivek. I wanted to get your outlook on, um, you know, this new movement calling for a central bank digital currency. Um, would Do you think this would give governments too much control of our money? I know China has been working towards digitalizing their yuan, and a lot of people have just been skeptical of, of government control over our finances. I know I'm, I'm from Canada, and, and last year uh, we had the government um, impose an emergency act where they, you know, froze um, over 200 ac- uh, accounts at a truck rally. So I don't know if this kind of feeds into that movement or, or what's your outlook on this central banking digital currency and, and the government maybe having too much control over our finances? Well, I'm dead set against it. And it's not just government having control over our finances. It's actually using our finances to have control over other aspects of our lives. Right. And I think that's actually the missing link here is that it's not just about threats to your dollars, because what they're using is you're using your dollars as hostage to coerce behavior in a particular direction. And that's what China, by the way, recognized. That's why they wanted a central bank digital currency system. They wanted a, a mechanism to enforce its system of social credit scoring to be able to deduct yuan, deduct currency, if you're not behaving in a particular way. And so I think it is perverse for the U.S. to now say that because China's doing it, somehow that's a justification for us to want to do it. To the contrary, it should be our reason for waking up to why this is a bad idea for us And to those who say that's going to make the dollar weaker or less competitive versus the yuan, I give you the opposite argument. I think it makes the dollar stronger if countries like China are, you know, effectively undermining the value of their currency by lending it to the capricious whims of government to be confiscated. I think that the U.S. dollar should actually perform relatively stronger in global currency markets against that backdrop. 
You you also said something recently saying ESG came out of the 2008 financial crisis. Central bank digital currency will come out of the next one. How do you think that will happen? Well, I think that the financial crisis ultimately provides, I mean, if there's a banking crisis that really extends further this year, more bailouts from the government. Bailouts are the mechanism by which the government actually effectuates other asks that the government would have never otherwise uh, been granted permission to by the governed. So what happened after the 2008 financial crisis is that it was a condition of the bailouts. It was a kind of a dowry in the arranged marriage between government and business in this country. And I think the same thing, I think, has the potential to happen to take that to the next scale where you have consolidation of the financial system in the handful of a small number of banks that are backstopped by government control. The government will say the bailout comes with the string attached that you participate in a central banking digital currency, in a central bank driven digital currency. And I think that is a good example of how the government consistently lets no crisis go to waste to actually advance an agenda that the people would have otherwise never accepted, but for having effectively the equivalent of a gun to their head. Vivek, just a question. Um, you make great points there. And just, just a question on Bitcoin and what your stance is on Bitcoin. I'd love to know. I love Bitcoin. It's a short stance. I mean, I think that there's separate questions you could ask, but I think that one of the promises of crypto and decentralized currency is to offer an opt out to the existing financial system. And I think that sometimes you have to build on a fresh scaffold in order to innovate, in order to realize a promise. So that's why I'm in favor of it. I don't like cronyism instead and to say that, well, we need this new internecine regulatory structure either. So that's kind of where I land on it. I'm going to jump off for a little bit, guys, and I'll be right back on. I'll be right back on. You continue the conversation. I'll join you in just a little bit. Thank you so much. Thank you. I think that idea of, you know, just, you know, having a presidential candidate and, and the more we'll see this is just having people's clear views on, on a Bitcoin and is going to be, uh, is gonna, this is a you know, big change, right? Huge change in, in, in terms of how, how we think about this. But, you know, he raises good points about, you know, just anchoring this whole thing right now, right now, uh, right now central banks are untethered, right? And, and uh, you know, do we come back to a gold standard? Do we, you know, do we, all of these um, just helps help give us some tangibility here which in a world of, of money printing and you're just not there. Vivek made a good point too about if we don't have a digital currency in the developed world and then China does, I'd say there's a freedom premium basically because as a citizen, you have more freedom to make financial decisions independently of the government. So why wouldn't there be some type of premium if it, it, so he was saying it's not negative for these other countries if China goes first and, and they don't follow. I think that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, freedom has some value. Uh, you're not being told what to do by the government all the time. Yeah, I thought that was actually profound. Well, last time we followed China into anything, did it turn out well? That's all I'm going to say. And, and we're going to get on that, obviously, Tracy. Like, you know, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a real important, you know, he's, he's probably been the most outspoken candidate uh, on America's relations with China to a point of, like, pure, you know, it'd be economic uh, warfare, like more or less, right? Like, this is like, you know, t taking everything back and saying, listen, uh, you know, you, t America goes, goes totally toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with China. And for anybody new that's coming up now, Vivek had to drop off, but he's coming right back, just so you know. It's a busy guy. <laughs> yeah. So I he's not done. 
I would be interested to get his outlook on like America first in terms of trade policy and how he differs from Trump, because I know that was really Trump's a big part of Trump's rhetoric when he ran. So I'd, l- I'd like to see how it's different from Trump. And I know he's been quoted in the media saying that he wants to ban American companies from doing business with China. So it'll be interesting to get his take on that, given we're so dependent on them through our supply chain. So looking forward to having that discussion with him as well. I'm looking forward to talking about energy policy, right? Because he's very, well, pro-oil and gas. So I want to see what his views are and what he envisions on kind of, you know, trying to, to balance energy security, energy transition, you know, his views on the recent demonization of uh, sort of the oil and gas industry. Yeah, that's his bread and butter. So uh, definitely looking forward to that. You know, and, and just to follow follow on with that, it, it just right now, North North America and America particularly is you know very is blessed with abundant and cheap natural gas. And you know what he would do on that front, right? Like you know to have this landlocked is ridiculous. And what would he do to expedite the LNG exportation of natural gas? Like to to me, like I know Scott, you know we spent a lot of time looking at this, and Tracy, we've talked about this. I just think that just kind of is like. If anyone is doing strategic, you know, planning and decisioning, like that has to be like number one or two on your agenda when it comes to energy. Yeah, I mean, Tom, if you want, I could set the stage why gas is such a big opportunity for anyone listening who isn't uh, isn't an expert on on that part of the market. Yes, that'd be great. So for anyone who doesn't know the opportunity with gas, uh, North America is blessed with an abundance of cheap, plentiful natural gas. And there's been a a technology uh, breakthrough over the last few years called liquefied natural gas that has now basically allowed natural gas from one country to move anywhere in the world, like oil. And so what that's done is democratized the entire global gas market. And now where are we sitting? We're sitting in North America that has some of the cheapest gas in the world. So we can compete with any other country to sell them gas, and we have a ton of it. So there's a huge opportunity to incentivize us to become basically the global LNG leader, because as we look to uh, decrease emissions across the globe, gas is much better than coal. So it's a no brainer that you can start transitioning off of coal to gas, make a difference in global warming. You don't need to go necessarily into the whole debate uh, back and forth on renewables. You don't even have to go there. You just can go gas as a stopgap, and then you can talk about renewables after so there's an opportunity for the U.S. and Canada to be the global leader in LNG, and that's going to generate billions of dollars in revenue, tax revenue, jobs, the whole thing. So be interesting to see what he says about how we can – we're already taking advantage of it, but there's a lot more that can be done. So it would be interesting to hear his take on that. That's, uh, that's my expertise, and I, I wrote up a, a very specific question uh, about that, but what they – the other big thing that you have to realize, it's not just LNG, it's container shipping, it's our riverways, our systems of moving energy and food. We have this huge abundance in our nation, but out of the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, Mayor Pete has only invested 0.08% into this maritime thing, so we can't get the products out of the U.S., and he's sitting on eight LNG export terminal permits right now. Uh, DOT is. So uh, they're, they're specifically throttling back this, this uh, 
infrastructure and no one understands shipping or the rivers or ports. So they're getting away with it. John, that's a great point. That's the plumbing, right? You got to work on the, the, the plumbing is to work first before you can get everything else humming. So um, yeah, they got to, they got to look at that. Right. And the, the Republican side going back, you know, they deregulated it. So China took on that market share. They invested in shipping, they invested in ports, they invested in shipbuilding, and they filled that gap. So both sides are to blame the Republicans deregulating too much and the, and the Democrats, I think, purposely ignoring so that they could throttle these exports. You know, this gets me thinking there's actually a political angle to LNG, too. China has an insatiable need for LNG. They've been ramping up their imports to go along with with their coal because for them, you know, they they want to be able to breathe all right on a general day and go out for a run. And so they're realizing you can't just rely on coal and they're moving to LNG imports. That would give the West maybe more political power and a bigger seat at the table if we're a major low cost supplier of energy to, to China more so than we are now. Absolutely. And it would be very easy to say all of those exports coming out of U.S. terminals have to go on board U.S. ships. That would allow us to rebuild our shipyards. And now rebuilding the shipyards would allow us to solve the Navy problem. The Navy is right now far behind China. We have better ships, but we're far behind in, in capacity and our ships are rusting. We, we don't have that shipyard capacity. That one little change saying those exports have to go on U.S. flagged ships would rebuild shipping uh, shipyards quickly. Well, and speaking of that, what are you, John, you know, I've had you on my speeches before, but, um, you know, do you think that, I mean, if we build ships and say that we have to uh, export LNG on U.S. ships, do we then have to alter the Jones Act? Well, there are, I, I don't talk about the Jones Act because it's the third rail, but I was talking to a group of very high-level bankers, uh, think Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, who do this, and one of the their, their biggest suggestions was, let's do a BOGO deal, a buy one, get one free that you see at Target and stuff. But their thought is, hey, if I build one in the United States, uh, let me build three ships in our allied countries of Korea and Japan. And maybe they're not in the Jones Act trade. They could be elsewhere. But we have to look at helping our allies as well, prioritizing U.S. shipyards, but also our allies in Korea, Japan, Germany, who have shipyards, they're losing market share to China. So how do we get a win-win for, for everyone, right? Yeah, yeah, those are really good points. That is a creative uh, way to get around that. Yeah, why not follow China's lead a little more on making advantageous cheap loans as a way to uh, kind of start relationships with other countries? So if we're investing in, you know, the growth of, of shipping, that's going to benefit our country. But then we also are deepening relationships with other countries. Well, the banks won't invest because they have to follow the maritime the DOT's guidelines and the DOT sitting on these eight LNG export terminal permits, they just refuse to sign it. And if the big oil majors can't get permits signed for LNG that our allies desperately need, what's the hope of a shipping company getting the paperwork signed? But the DOT just refuses to sign these things. 
So the banks won't touch them. JP Morgan won't go near DOT, anything that has to do with it, because they're not getting signed by, by Buttigieg. Yeah, so the government has to lead here. Absolutely. And sadly, we just don't have that ambitious of a bunch right now in those positions. Or are they very ambitious to throttle back energy to push their ESG? You know, this is the question. Are they being incompetent or is this a plan? I, I don't know the answer. What do you think, Tracy? Uh, you know, I vastly back and forth between is it incompetency or is it on purpose, right? Because you have to think that, you know, if you look even just at the West as a whole, not just the United States, we've taken Europe it, taking into account of this, you know, uh, when they had the energy crisis last summer, 2022, you know, they jumped right back into coal, they jumped right back into natural gas, build out LNG G facilities, et cetera, et cetera. And now that that crisis seems to have passed, they're, you know, kind of back on this green push. So it seems like either they don't learn the lesson or they're just woefully blind. Because I think that the, the, the crisis is definitely not over with at this point. And the, the question remains now, is this going to filter into the United States, right? Are we going to see the same kind of energy crisis if we keep trying to demonize this industry? Absolutely. That's an excellent point. And is it is it a production problem with the energy? And we have food problems too, food security, and we have uh, poor congestion. Is it is there a lack of oil or is it a movement of the oil? Is it a transport problem? It's a, it's a lot of problems. I mean, it's, you know, it's government saying we don't want you around in the next 10 years. And so that doesn't really incentivize uh, much more exploration and production, right? Companies are very weary of doing that. Uh, and then you, you have, we have a transportation problem. I mean, we have a, we've got a lot of problems right now, to, to be honest. If we're looking at this industry and no substantial plan to sort of move forward. And Vivek is back. Yeah, I got a couple more. I can take a couple more questions. Uh, we're on a bus in New Hampshire, but uh, good, good, uh, good to continue the chat. Perfect. Thank you. So we were just talking about energy. Uh, a lot of people on here are energy uh, traders and investors. Um, so really, we wanted to kind of get your outlook on energy policy. I mean, given everything we've seen unfold in Europe over the past year, kind of what are your thoughts on balancing energy security with energy transition going forward? Because it seems like the current administration is very focused on demonizing this industry without a substantial plan going forward. Even if we look at something like the IRA Act, you know, that's fine and well and all, but, you know, they still do, that plan still doesn't even address the permitting issues that we have yeah. and the bureaucratic red tape we have. And to the go permitting through. process is broken. It's broken by design because it was one of the backdoor mechanisms to actually shut down fossil fuels. They just use permitting and bureaucracy almost as the excuse. So, my view is I'm, I don't believe that there should be any government guidance towards an energy transition, period. If the market through market forces wants to select which forms of energy it wants to use, great, I'm fine with that. 
But right now, if it's left to market forces, we're going to be drilling, fracking and burning coal and over time embracing nuclear energy. That's what I think the future looks like. I think wind and solar, I have no problem with it, but they need to stand on their own two feet without government subsidies. And so I think this is one of the critical ingredients to also, I talked about the Fed reform earlier as an ingredient to GDP growth. I think that unshackling U.S. energy is another one of those ingredients. And then the third one I would add to the list is putting people back to work. That's a separate topic. But I think unshackling the U.S. energy sector unapologetically, embracing fossil fuels, that's what I actually would support as an energy policy priority, because I think energy security is economic security and energy and economic security are national security. I don't think Putin would have invaded Russia if we hadn't put ourselves in a straitjacket here in the United States with respect to fossil fuel production. I really believe that to be true. And I can explain why I think that's true. But suffice to say, we ought to learn our lessons or we ought to be damned to even worse fate in the future. Well, explain why you think that's true then, since you better. <laughs> well, I mean, put yourself in Putin's shoes, right? He, he knows he has more leverage when the West and Western Europe are reliant on him for oil and gas. Uh, sometimes joke around. He actually, Russia is actually responsible for funding some of the ESG nonprofits and institutes, even in Western Europe. And so I sometimes joke around that ESG stands for export Soviet gas, because that's the effect that it's had on global markets. But nonetheless, I think that Putin's calculus would have been different if he knew that he didn't have the leverage to actually have to supply oil and gas to much of Western Europe, if the United States were doing it instead. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we're starting to see a, a massive energy in crisis in this country, not akin to what we saw in Europe. Europe, you know, we saw what happened in Europe summer of 2022, right? And so do you think that that the U.S. is down this path if we continue these policies? Well, um, I think the U.S. is not on a good path if we continue these policies. I think that it is eminently reversible. That's why I'm in this. One of the reasons I'm in this race is I think that we're not yet at the point of point of no return or da permanent damage. I think we can actually, our natural resources, they're still exactly where we left them. Western Europe hasn't come to its senses either. So the U U.S. still has an opportunity to lead the way. I just think it's going to take real leadership to get there, which is a big part of my domestic policy agenda of economic growth relates to unshackling that U.S. energy sector. Uh, I, I wanted, to, wanted to share like, look, I mean, we're never going to as Americans agree with 100% of what we actually believe. But the best I'm going to do is give you what I actually believe 100% of the time. And if people find themselves aligned with even most of that message, I'd ask you to actually help me get these messages to the center of the debate stage. The first Republican primary debate is in August. I'll be on there, but we want to be at the center of that debate stage. And one of the ways to do it is if you could literally, you know, just today, right now, whatever, Go to Vivek2024.com, V-I-V-E-K-2024.com. Don't give a lot of money. Just give a dollar, actually. One dollar, not more. That alone helps us get to the place we need to be uh, on the debate stage. And I think that we need to be debating in the Republican Party more the specifics of how we actually unleash the U.S. energy sector, talk about GDP growth, reform the U.S. Fed, the things I talked about earlier. I just ask you guys to go to Vivek2024.com and give a dollar. I appreciate that. I'll take one more question and then we'll wrap it up. Thomas, you want to go for uh, the last question? We want to talk about China and trade. Yes, uh, Vivek, we would love to you know, get your fulsome understanding on, on China. And, and please give us an overview of where you stand and, and you, know, how you, uh, you know, how you deal with China from an economic perspective. Perfect question. I think it's really important. <laughs> it's our moment, actually. So 
China is in a weaker spot than most policymakers actually understand. Xi Jinping shot China in the foot last year to hold on to his unprecedented third term of power, broke the chain of succession in China. This presents an opportunity for us. Okay, this is our moment to actually declare economic independence from China. So that's what I'll do as an ex-president. I'll sit across the table from Xi Jinping and say that we're cutting the tie. We're banning most U.S. businesses from expanding into China. We're going to actually stop CCP affiliates from buying land in the United States, from donating to U.S. nonprofits and universities, that we're going to hold China accountable for unleashing hell on the world with the COVID-19 pandemic, using every financial lever we have available. By the way, unshackling ourselves from the climate cult that's a wet blanket on the U.S. while leaving China untouched. We're putting an end to all of that unless and until you meet our list of demands. No more data theft. No more intellectual property theft. No more turning our companies into lobbying pawns to advance your geopolitical agenda through this mercantilist practice. We're done. We're actually declaring independence. And I think that, by the way, if we show up and we actually mean it, and part of the way we mean it is to say, I'm not giving you a false promise to say we're immediately going to onshore all that to the U.S. We're going to use Japan, South Korea, India, Thailand, Philippines, Vietnam, Australia, Brazil, Western Europe, Mexico to really fill that gap. That then becomes credible. And I think what Xi Jinping, I think I think the CCP will fall unless Xi Jinping radically reforms that behavior because the grand bargain in China between its citizens and its govern government is that they'll give up their freedoms as long as they get prosperity in return. Once you take that prosperity in return, that white sheet revolution we saw in China last year was just a tip of the iceberg, a preview of coming attractions. And so we're in a codependent relationship with our enemy. I think codependent relationships do not end well. The only question is who ends it first. And I think the sooner the better for the United States. And that's different from the U.S. I think we might have lost Vivek. Hey, can you hear me? Now we can. We lost you for... Where was I when I cut out? Codependency on China. Yep. Okay. Well, you you guys heard most of it. (laughs) I'll tell you, I'm I'm on a bus in New Hampshire and we're entering an awful signal area. We're campaigning across the state, crisscrossing this granite state. Um, What I'll say is, I think you got the gist of it. I think we can declare independence and we can surpass China economically so that we'll never have to defeat them militarily. But I also think that'll be a catalyst to get the CCP to actually reform their behaviors that just takes fortitude in leadership on our side. So, Vivek, just on a just follow up on that with respect to corporations, like you know, I think you you raised that point that so many now are, are you know doing the bidding for the for the CCP and, and you know their own aligned interests. You know how how difficult do you think it'll be, or have you had uh, a chance to kind of survey corporations that would get behind your you know your stance and and you know American independence from China? economically i think in the short run a lot of corporations would not prefer it uh but i think that they understand the need the leadership understands the need for objectives that the government sets the constraints against which corporations operate and national security of the united states ought to be one of those constraints and so i think people are understanding of it and especially if the united states sets our trade policies with other allies from south korea as i said to japan to india to the southeast asian nations to you know western africa to western europe to mexico and so on I think that we can make this really much less painful than it's made out to be. I think it could be relatively, relatively painless. There'll be some short-term trade-offs, but I think that those will be minimal compared to the long-run benefits. And I just think we need to start thinking on the timescales of history 
rather than election cycles or quarterly earnings reports. And so that's the way I'm going to lead. And as I said, if that message resonates with you all or even partially resonates with you all, what I'll promise to do in August is to get those ideas at the center of the debate stage in the Republican Party. So if you guys go to Vivek2024.com and give a dollar today, it's not for the money. It's for the movement. But Vivek2024.com, a dollar. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me and letting me helicopter in as we're on this bus in the middle of New Hampshire. And thanks for bearing with me with our signal as well. Take care, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, and please continue tackling the education of reformation that the whole United States and world needs as we're all falling short in all the areas of education. We need to get rid of the system that it is in place. All right. Tony, did you have one thing to, to ask? Yeah, but here's what I was going to ask. You know, I was going to ask if he could actually appoint people who understand China instead of the typical think tank hacks who get paid twenty dollars to $50,000 a year for a speaking engagement in China who are already compromised. We see this again and again and again with U.S. government, quote-unquote, officials who are leading our policy on China. And we don't necessarily need to name think tanks here, but this is the same thing over and over again. And we need to have somebody in the Oval Office. If China truly is our adversary, can you imagine during the Cold War, if we had think tank people who were being paid by the Soviet Union to give speeches and, quote-unquote, do research there, uh, and they were being paid the equivalent of, say, a third to a half to a full amount of their annual salary in supposed speaking fees. Can you imagine if those people were overseeing our policy for the Soviet Union? So, you know, there has to be some qualification that nobody doing our China policy can be involved in a think tank that gets any money directly or indirectly from the CCP or the Chinese government um, and nobody who has been paid for speaking engagements and I'll say the word research generally if they're involved in China policy just can't happen. 100%. For people that don't know, Tony Nash is our resident China expert and a good friend of mine. But he, he knows China. He lived in China. And so uh, he knows what he's talking about. Thank you, Tracy. I appreciate that. I'm done, I'm done now. I don't want to bother you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tony, can I, can I ask you a question on that front? Just how many of these think tanks, like, I, I just would love to y y get your perspective on how ingrained Dude, this is. Dude, the, the head of Brookings, the head of Brookings was on the board of Chinese state-owned uh, state companies, okay? I mean, this is how pervasive this is. Look at Peterson. Look at, look at any major think tank and look at their relationships with China. Christopher Balding is the best guy at, at knowing these and teasing these out. But, and you can follow him. He's on Twitter at Balding's World. But these relationships are terrifying, okay? And these people have access to the National Security Council, to DOD, to all of the people who make the right decisions, or not the right decisions, all of the people who are in place to make those decisions um, I advised the Chinese government, I never, I never hold this back, okay? I'm very transparent about this. For two years, I advised the Chinese government on the Belt and Road Initiative. I advised uh, the national, um, the, the economic planner, central economic planner called the NDRC, okay? I never took a penny from those guys. 
for travel expenses, for compensation, nothing, okay? Um, but I do know how the bureaucracy, or I won't say no, I have a very good feel for how the bureaucracy works because I've, I've spent time inside of it. Um, and when I was uh, speaking once, again, for free at one of the major think tanks in Beijing, there was a person from Brookings who was an active Brookings contributor at the time who came in to speak after I spoke, and she insisted that I leave the room because I was a U.S. citizen. She only wanted Chinese citizens in the room, and I'll say this person actually determined U.S. energy policy for a period of time, okay? And so this stuff is very much pay-to-play. The U.S. government is very much compromised, and it's still going on. So if we don't make this an absolute critical requirement of anybody who's handling China policy, and I mean anybody, not people at the top, I mean all along the continuum of China policy people, we're, we're doomed. And I would say right now we're doomed, okay? But if, we, if, if somebody comes in office who can actually get people who both understand China and are not compromised, uh, that's a tightrope to walk, but, uh, but it's possible to do that, and we can make much better China policy then. I was going to ask, I, I was going to ask you, how possible is this, right, given that we have these, that everybody is so intertwined, if we cut these relationships off, how does that, you know, does that piss China off? Pardon my French. Um, does that, you know, how do we do that uh, diplomatically, I should ask? When you say diplomatically, what do you mean? Do you mean that with China or in, inside the U.S.? Uh, uh, b- both. <laughs> okay. Well, here's, here's when, uh, when Trump was uh, running in 2016, he and Steve Bannon agreed that there would be, that nobody from a think tank would be allowed in the administration. They ended up breaking that, okay? But this was one of their pre-election promises. Um, and so I think you have to come up with some qualifications. When I say nobody from a think tank could, could serve, absolutely not. There are some very smart people within think tanks. But you have to say, we're going to do a thorough background check on your relationships. We're going to do a thorough background check on your income. And we're going to do a thorough background check on the travel that you've done over the last five to ten years, right? And so if you are, you know, there are certain things that are disqualifying, and you have to be very transparent with with this stuff. And you can develop China policy without everyone being a China expert, okay? You need people at the top and, say, top middle who actually understand what they're talking about. And the lower-level people are just analysts, and they go out and gather information and put, put ideas together. So it's not as if everyone needs to be a deep and thorough China expert. They just need to be committed, and they'll learn what they need to know. That absolutely makes sense. Does anybody else have any comments on? Well, Tracy, go ahead. Yeah, no, just on that point, I I thought, you know, I I felt that there was a window, say, you know, five years after this integration happened. But now we're like a good 15 years in and I just don't I don't know what the 
supply chain repercussions are. I, you know, there's enough unknowns for me that I just don't, you know, it, it just, if there's a, that worrying aspect. And I think that's what keeps a lot of people on the fence in the sense that like we're so connected to China that, you know, unplugging what that would mean for inflation. I think that if I had to really boil it down, what does that mean for inflation is, is really the, 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 the electronic supply chain is already moving to Mexico and has been moving there for three to five years. Okay. So some of the more sophisticated aspects of what we import, it's, you know, it's already in progress. And, you know, you guys know about the chip valves and other things that are being built in the U S and, you know, so, so the more sophisticated end of the supply chain is already moving, okay? And so when you look at, say, the trinkets that we buy from China because they're cheap and subsidized and electricity is subsidized and all that stuff, a lot of that stuff is already moving to other places, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, India, and so on and so forth, right? So, you know, what, I guess if companies are public and they have a supply chain that is fully centric on China – then their shareholders need to tell them, hey, man, we're really worried about another COVID coming along and all of your products being unavailable if China does what they did again, right? And so companies have to have, I wouldn't necessarily say redundancy, but they have to have some ability to, to have significant portions of their supply chain close to their home market, whether that's around the U.S. or that's around Europe, close to their home market, um, so that they can serve those home, home markets in an uninterrupted manner, right? So, of course, you're going to have very commoditized goods that are made in China and other places, and a lot of that manufacturing is or will be automated very soon, right? And so you put up a factories, you know, spend some CapEx, it's got a, you know, 15-year lifespan, and you make those trinkets, right? And I know that's I, – I say that a lot more simply than it is in fact, but, but a, a lot of the manufacturing – goods we get really aren't necessarily that specialized. But my point here is that the more specialized aspects of it are already moving to places like Mexico to be in our region. So there's a lot of hand-wringing over this stuff, but I really don't necessarily think it's as, as hard as many people make it out to be. Tony, that, that's just excellent. And, and what I see with the think tanks, man, you really hit the nail on the head there. And I think it's not just what the think tanks are looking at, but the things that they're not. You look, all these national security think tanks, there's no energy experts. There's no shipping experts in there. there there's no. So what, what are these? What are the think tanks not focusing on? And I mentioned before, you know, right now the world needs this LNG. We have an abundance of LNG, food and everything. But uh, the Department of Transportation, Marad, sitting on eight LNG terminal permits. Why aren't the think tanks, uh, you know, looking at this? What, what else are these think tanks missing, uh, possibly on purpose? Um, John, I, I have to apologize. I I really don't look at a lot of the think tanks anymore because what they put out is effectively um, ad-supported, uh, sponsored reports, generally, um, or it's stuff that is like a, a report from the Federal Reserve, which is probably six months late to be interesting. And so, so I, I really don't pay attention to what they what they look at, but what they need to look at is um, they they need to look at real supply chain vulnerabilities. They need to look at real capacity vulnerabilities in their specialized area. Um, they need to name names on who is compromised because they all know 
They all know who is going to China to speak. They all know who serves on boards in China. They all know who serves indirectly on boards in other places, whether it's charitable organizations or companies. They all know this. They have to name names because this is compromising the U.S. viability. Okay, but those are the things they need to be talking about. And do I do I believe that the U.S. needs to be completely separate from China? No. I have a lot of friends in China. I respect China. I think the Chinese people are incredible. But we just can't be held hostage to the CCP, right? That's, you know, plain and simple. We can't be held hostage to the CCP. So, you know, we have to figure out how whatever we do in China has to be something of a redundant capacity or a kind of parallel capacity to something we have elsewhere, right? So I don't really see anybody doing that type of analysis, and it needs to be done. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that, because, you know, if we look at the ESG movement or whatever, just to bring this back to energy really quickly, because it's my favorite topic, um, you know, we're buying all this stuff from China that is essentially built by power from coal and uh, and fossil fuels that the West seems, seems to hate. And so that seems kind of contradictory to, you know, to the green policy, right, at the end of the day? Yeah, it's absolutely contradictory. And we're hemming ourselves in to be dependent on China for alternative energy kind of uh, platforms, whether it's solar or whatever, for the next decade or two, right? And for electric vehicle parts and batteries and other things. It's like we're afraid to have the environmental impact on our soil, so we outsource that to other places so we can feel good about our carbon footprint here in the U.S., although we're hurting Chinese, poor Chinese people who are in third-tier cities where they make these batteries, right? So if we're going to commit to this, we need to own that environmental footprint as well instead of outsourcing it, and we need to have it here so we can make sure it's made to the standards that we expect ourselves to adhere to and not just outsource it so other people can get poisoned and so that their environment can, you know, can deteriorate. It's always uh, not in my background, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, look, we've been doing that for decades, right? Ever, you know, globalization, yes, it's about cost, but a lot of it is we don't want to see how garments are actually made. We don't want to see how these dirty industries work. We don't want to, you know, do all of this stuff. We want to turn away from it, and we just want to see the finished product and get something that's affordable. You know, like a pair of jeans is, what, 20 bucks? A pair of jeans has been 20 bucks for the last 40 years, right? And so, you know, when we look at some of those, now it may be a little bit different because of inflation, but in general, you're looking at 20 to 30 bucks, right? And so, you know, it's been that cost for 30 years, right, or, or longer. And so, you know, it's, it's that way because we're going to the low, lowest cost place. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I believe in optimizing cost, but we as consumers have to be able to look in the mirror and be comfortable with the conditions that, that, that all of those items are made in, whether it's electric vehicle batteries or jeans or sneakers or whatever, right? And we've just kind of turned away from that. And now a lot of that low, uh, those low-cost goods 
could be made in other places, and they could even be made here as things are automated, right? So I do think that there's a lot more that can be made here through automation, uh, manufacturing automation. But the, the bigger point is we can't outsource our environmental garbage anymore. We have to have it here, especially if we're being forced by the government to adopt electric vehicles and get rid of ICE vehicles. We can't outsource the components of that, and it's convenient for us to plug in a car and not see the smoke coming out of the uh, power generation station. It's also convenient for us to plug in a car and not see all the garbage that comes with you know, mining the minerals and, and uh, manufacturing the batteries. Absolutely. And do you think that just on this kind of same vein, do you think that as China kind of moves from manufacturing to a consumer society, um, you know, it won't even be cost effective anymore? And perhaps it's, it's too early to say that, but we have seen, you know, minimum wage, you know, in China start rising uh, above some other Asian countries. And so eventually they no, are going to be. If you, if you hire, if you hire a, a kind of a, an office worker in Shanghai versus, I don't know, somewhere in the middle of the U.S., Houston or something, which is where I live, honestly, the, the, the cost is not going to be that much different, okay? If you're going to a third-tier city or you're going to South Asia or something like that, yeah, you're going to save money. But in general, and this is really hard for Americans to understand, you know, if you hire, and I know this is in China, but if you hire an office worker in Korea, in Seoul, it's actually more expensive to hire there than it is in the U.S., okay? And um, a lot of people still consider Korea like a, an emerging market, which is kind of a joke. That is happening regionally in China, or has already happened regionally in China. You don't pay the same in New York as you do in Houston, Texas, right? So you have cities in China where it's relatively more expensive and less expensive. And so China has achieved consumer economy status in different cities and provinces, but there's you know, a huge part of the country where that's just not the case, that a lot of foreigners just, they're not allowed to visit, so they don't go visit. That makes sense. Guys, I really apologize. I appreciate this, Tracy. I'm so grateful for the opportunity, but I really have to go. One of my staff, it's his birthday today, I've got to take him to lunch. So I apologize for this. Thank you so no, much. Thank guys. you, thank really you for jumping it. on. This was a surprise appearance by you. So we're very, <laughs> you very happy to have you. No, it's fantastic. You know, it's, it's nice to, uh, you know, have Vivek spur the discussion. And clearly he's got strong views. And, you know, Tony's uh, Tony's takes are, are uh, very insightful, right? And I have to say, Tracy, you know, this is one of the – out of all of what Vivek says, and I can truly understand the energy side, and I think, you know th- – Everything he's suggesting on the energy side, breaking apart the red tape and just going like the, all of that will be easy, easy, right? Like that's all going to be a net p- benefit from an economic perspective. Just the unknown is just what will happen on this uh, Chinese side. But, you know, I, I think, again, I think he, he's raising a good point. Just, you know, you get, you know, getting these these key discussion points out in the open and, and, and discussing them in a, you know, in a presidential uh, race, it's, it's critical. Well, absolutely, because a lot of what he has brought up has really not been in discussion, right, by any candidate. I mean, there's no candidate. Everybody kind of tiptoes around the issues that we really should be talking about, right? And he's kind of bringing it out on the open. So, you know, I know there's a you know a lot of discussion whether or not he'll win or not. 
I think that's just not the point. I think the point is, is that he's bringing up topics that no other candidate is really talking about right now that need to be brought up in this uh, political discussion and in this political race, which I think is just fantastic. Yeah, it really is holding people's feet to the fire, right, to say, you know, Vivek, you may not win or you may get close or irrespective, but, you know, you leading candidate, you know, what's your what's your view? Would you do what Vivek will do? Yes or no. And that is enough, right? Absolutely, because, you know, he's bringing up questions that people are going to ask other candidates now. Right. And they're going to have to answer some way, you know, one way or another. And if they skirt around the issue, kind of says a lot. Right. And, and just, you know, on the on the energy side, I, those are spot on. Like, I, I can't imagine any Republican candidate not, you know, being completely on side with what he's saying. And I think he's just, uh, you know, I think he's placed it uh, in the most clearest, understandable way. And I think that's something that he really stands out. Right? Just like this is what needs to be done. Reduce the red tape and, you know, get product to market fast, fast. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, it's not that hard. I think in the end, if you just cut out the fat, right? But there's just uh, right now there's just too many hands in the pot, so to speak. Right. And so we need to find some way to kind of streamline that process. And, you know, it's not just the U.S. as well. I mean, Europe has the same exact problem uh, with their permitting process. In fact, you know, their uh, legislation that is going through uh, basically says they want, I think it's 10 or 20 percent of renewable minerals to be uh, mined within Europe, yet they have the exact same permitting problem. In fact, even worse, to, to be honest. So it's not just the United States, it's the West in general. And so we need to figure out how to, to, to kind of cut, again, cut the fat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, mean, I think that's the kind of like talking, like, you know, for Europe is a great example, right? You're talking about both sides of your mouth. You want all of, you want the EV revolution. You want uh, the electrification, but your policies don't align with respect to resource attraction in any way, shape, or form. Which is is that idea? Well, you can't have, you can't be a champagne environmentalist, right? You can't be like, I want all these things, but like, but not in my backyard, right? Like, I, you know, like you do that in Congo. I think that's just a big issue, right? It's just like, you know, we, we had a good discussion yesterday just on, on critical metals. And what was interesting is that Australia is one of the few nations that is like, you know, no limited red tape uh, to get a mine to permitting. Uh, you know, incentivization is there. If, you know, all of it is set up to go, you know, versus, say, a Europe, if you compare and contrast that, it's like you've got all of these virtue signaling things on one side, but you're not willing to back it up into in it with respect to the resource extraction side. Exactly. And then I, that again is, is the major problem in the energy industry. And, you know, if we're looking globally right now, you have to look at the repercussions of what is happening in the West is affecting the entire world because right now it's energy is uh, of prime importance, energy independence. And this is why we're seeing, you know, countries like India and China, still buying from Russia, uh, North Africa uh, as well, because they don't care what, you know, don't care what the West says, to be honest. What they want is energy security. They want cheap energy and they can get that. And it's really every country for themselves right now at this point and not every country is 
wants to follow the U.S. down this or follow the West down this path right now. I thought Vivek's comments on Russia were were, were interesting, right? It, it, it's that you know we these seeds have been sowed for quite some time, and that that's what's allowed Putin uh, to take advantage. And I don't think it's going to be a simple. If I was reading, you know, his perspective is right. The way to go forward is is to is to establish our genuine energy independence uh, outside of R- Russia, and but that's kind of been you know multi decades in the making to give him the power. So we have to kind of unravel that first, right? There's not going to be a quick fix to get Russia, uh, you know, to behave nicely. Uh, absolutely, it's definitely not going to be a quick fix. I mean, it's, the whole uh, Europe counting on Russia too much for energy started with Merkel, right? This started decades ago, so. <laughs> It's not gonna. It's not gonna take a year to fix or two years to fix. To be honest, John, go ahead. Well, yeah, I just want to say one more thing about the NIMBY. Uh, you know, I watched Clarkson's farm. Jeremy Clarkson, you know, the the race car guy from from England, and he he got this farm right, and he got a bunch of cattle, and he's been fighting the government in England for all this. Every time he wants to pave a road or do, he's trying to make improvements, and they. They fight him. But there was this tuberculosis outbreak and the Badgers were getting TB in England. And England invested hundreds of millions of dollars in tuberculosis spread research. They did a huge media campaign. They sent people out to all of the farms. They got the local citizens to bag these beavers. And if you found any um, badgers in your property, they sent a team of experts out to the property to manage it and look at it, and they surveyed it. And all of these people were very, in the show, you can see it, they're very dedicated to this and helping out with the prom. And then at the very end, though, they determine he's got this huge badger problem. They're going to infect his cattle. His cattle are going to die. His farm's going to go under. And then Clarkson looks at him and says, well, what do I what do I have to what can I what do I do now? And they go, well, that's up to you. We provide the survey. We provide the report. And he goes, well, let me tell you what I want to do. I want to shoot the badger. And they're like, whoa, no, it's a protected species. And he's like, can I trap the badger and move it? They're like, you cannot touch the badger. So there were all of these well-meaning people. And that's where I keep going back to this LNG terminal thing. Yeah, they, you know, when I look at the Navy, they want to do a study and they want to do an environmental study and they want to do a safety study. But they also want to do lethality studies and studies we need and explosion studies. And these all sound good, but we just got to shoot the damn badger. Like, just get the... Just sign the LNG terminal export permit already, uh, Pete. We, we, we're, we're getting killed in these studies. And the Navy's got 86,000 people working on shipbuilding, and they can't get a single ship out on time. But the problem is all these 86,000 people, they're really well-meaning experts. All these Badger experts were really good at their job. They, they all have master's degrees and everything else. So we have this workforce, and I think they're really smart and educated and motivated, but we're not, we're not allowed to shoot the badger. We just got to sign these damn LNG terminal permits. I, I'm sorry to keep going back to that issue, uh, Tracy, but shooting terminals. That is the most well, interesting analogy I've ever heard in my life. Thank you for sharing. I wrote an article on it. I'll send it to you. All right. Do it. Post it to Twitter. People will read it. I also thought it was interesting that Vivek brought up was a shareholder voice to corporate America's boardroom. 
that needs to like focus on strengthening energy industry rather than toxic political and social agendas. That's another thing that people aren't really talking about. And we're sort of seeing this in we're sort of seeing this in banks recently, right? All the banks that have said we're not you know, we're not going to fund any of these projects and fossil fuels anymore. Summer of 2022, we then started seeing a shift in this. You know, you had Vanguard drop out of the ESG, like the ESG club for banks. And so I wonder if, and I'd be happy to hear anybody's thoughts on this, is if we are, are seeing a subtle shift, because really what we're going to need to see this shift from is not only people um, in the government, but we're going to have to see this from the bank side, too. Right. We're going to have to see some sort of change from the bank saying, yeah, we will start funding these projects. Yeah. You know, it's it's a great point, Tristan. And, and you know, SVB and all these banks that you go under, right? It's kind of interesting, right? That the line between all of them is, is this woke continuum. You know, maybe just capital flows to, to where it's treated the best, right? That classic, which, you know, Vivek alluded to, right? Just kind of, um, you know, just, just let capitalism do its work. And I think, you know, let the best ideas permeate to the top. You get away from all, uh, you know, it just feels right now. You, you have so many, you have so many of these like filters and, you know, regulatory, you know, um, uh, either imposed or government imposed or self-imposed. It, it just, it's a, it's a crazy time where uh, I don't think the best ideas, irrespective, they could be, you know, they could be green, they could be, you know, fossil fuel uh, leaning, but right now you're, you have so many, um, you have so many of these filters that you don't really know whether, you know, what's coming out is, is, is truly the best. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I mean, I just think everybody should keep an eye on what are the banks doing? What are the major banks doing? You know, I, again, I think a Vanguard's move a couple months ago was huge. And so my hope is that we will rethink this energy policy without jumping into, how do I put this? We're not letting technology evolve. What we're doing is we're trying to push a technology that is not evolved yet <laughs> into policy, which is just not going to work. We need to let this technology evolve if we want to make the transfer to, uh, you know, all renewables. Great. But you can't push that without an evolution in technology. And the technology in renewables right now is not green. You have to realize that the mining for these takes a lot of energy. It's dirty, dirty, dirty. <laughs> and, you know, we don't have any way to recycle this stuff. I mean, half of the windmills are we just put into landfills when they're over with. Same with solar panels. None of this stuff degrades. None of it. And so we need to start thinking about this smarter and not try to rush into things that we're going to regret later, in my opinion. Yeah, great points, Tracy. And, and from your thoughts on on Vivek's discussion with respect to energy policy, and you know, do you, do you feel are, are we moving uh, the ball closer to a real uh, fulsome discussion on further Tracy's points? Right, you know, like let's you know let's really get the, these BTUs to market. I you know I just wonder how receptive are, are we going to be pushing the debate to where it needs to go. Scott's back. Talk. Go. <laughs> yeah, I think 
You know, it is a tougher political climate, I think, to be pushing uh, the oil narrative to, to flood the world with U.S. oil, even if it does look like our supply is in a much better situation than we knew, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Gas is easier because if you are transitioning to gas from coal, you're still achieving all these warming initiatives. So and, and that's one of those things where we have even more gas in North America than we have coal. So I think uh, he definitely is on the on the right track that if we know that we have just an abundance of a certain resource, why not find a way to sell it to the world and generate some extra income, extra jobs, extra tax revenue? Um, so I think that that makes a lot of sense because you can you can have your cake and eat it too with gas, decreasing global warming. And if people are really on the ESG track and they keep trying to push that and politically, you just can't ignore that. You can kind of do both of with with uh, you can do both. But I mean, oil may be a tougher thing, but still all good things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, natural gas is relatively clean burning. It's, um, you know, it's a great way for transition, particularly if you're looking at emerging markets because it's rather cheap. Right. Rather than building um, solar panels and uh, wind farms that, quite frankly, if you look at emerging markets, they can't really afford. And so they need money from the IMF and the World Bank and uh, loans from the U.S., et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, this just seems like chasing, you know, putting money in the wrong places right now for the for the wrong reasons, right? You have 600 million people in the African continent alone without electricity, and we're telling them to just go to, you know, wind and solar, and we'll, we'll help you pay for it. That doesn't cover nearly as much as they need as would cheap natural gas. That's just my opinion. Why? I don't know why we're making things so complicated. You know, you have a floating LNG vessel. Those are, you know, everywhere now. You basically just need to rent a floating LNG vessel. That will, it, it, it will hook up to um, a vessel from the U.S. and then it w- lets the LNG warm up. And then you just have to build some pipes on shore and build a natural gas plant, and you're off to the races. A natural gas plant much simpler than trying to reinvent the wheel with battery storage, what works windmills, deep offshore floating windmills, solar panels, finding the right land. That whole thing is, is unproven and very complicated logistically versus what we already know works LNG for emerging markets. They could just go there right away, cut out their coal, then figure out the next step. Well, exactly. And that is my point. And that's what everybody's missing. And we're trying, the West is trying to push their ideas because they know that these nations need money from the West. And so it's kind of like a strong arming them into an unrealistic energy consumption environment that is not actually helping them. Did you guys take from Vivek that he's pro um, expanding our relationships with the emerging markets compared to what we're doing today? Yeah, that that was the one that I, you know, his the idea of like for to to put it bluntly, right, forming a uh, an alliance against China, particularly with emerging markets like the you know the ones where he said they've offshored and uh, all that, you know, where where now you know you can kind of make this happen. I think that was it, that was interesting. I, I I'm not sure how feasible it is, but um, you know, can you really have a world order? 
ex-China. Like, I think that if I've understood that, sorry, a world trade order ex-China, if I've understood, if I understood his take correctly, I, I think I did. So it's an ambitious plan. Um, probably at a simpler level, you could just start by funding certain international projects on a kind of capital markets level versus he wants to go all in, uh, start the politics going uh, with, with other groups involved. Maybe you could do kind of a stealth um, reach out first and then, then work on that. I think it's going to be hard when we've had, you know, two decades of BRI, right? So you already have China, in, uh, particularly in uh, African emerging markets, and et cetera, to kind of offset that influence. It may be too little too late, but, um, you know, it, it's definitely worth uh, investigating, in my opinion, instead of what we're currently doing where we just saw yelling go to africa and say yeah we'll give you money as long as you do wind and solar and they're like what <laughs> so uh yeah i think it's it's we we have difficult hurdles ahead but it's not unrealistic it just needs to be approached differently than how we are currently approaching the situation in my opinion For sure. It's, it's um, well, you know, one thing I, I wanted to, you know, just, um, w- w- you know, one thing that I thought uh, was interesting was I didn't really know that he was that pro Bitcoin. I don't know what that, you know, just, just kind of changing the gears a bit. Right? That Bitcoin thing was quite kind of left field. I, I, I actually like, you know, I knew the whole digital currency thing and that all of that kind of made sense. I think Scott, you, you were, you were speaking to it after, but I didn't realize he was pro, like, you know, he's kind of taking that full libertarian all in let's go yeah he, he's against the, the government digital currency which makes sense but he's not against all digital currencies yeah yeah i i, I just because it you know one thing i can't reconcile is uh so many people view bitcoin as you know as a threat to the u.s dollar right you know you know and i guess he you know he's he's an advocate for a strong u.s dollar policy from the fed but if you allow bitcoin does that not threaten the U.S. dollar orthodoxy? I, you know, I, it, it, you know, that was an interesting take from him. Yeah, I, I, I think so as well. Because it's usually you have two camps, right? You're either strong dollar or strong, you know, altern, alternative, whether that be gold, Bitcoin, etc. I, I think that, um, you know, I think it's interesting that he finds a place for both, right? A stabilized dollar and also an alternative. He is the first millennial running candidate for the presidency. So you, 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 and for the Republican Party. So you'd expect him to be with it, you know, wanting to connect with a, with a younger audience. You know, he can't be full on like, you know, anti-Bitcoin because a lot of the younger generation is pro-Bitcoin too, I would think as well. Super point as well. Yeah, that's a really bang on point, right? You know, you, like the fastest way to, 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 if you had to do one full swoop to capture a demographic millennial and, and, and around, you know, just kind of wave the Bitcoin flag. Like, you know, that, that, that's a clear, easy win, especially if you're, you, you know, you're in the libertarian camp, right? Um, but, you know, it's, in, it's interesting because most people that are pro-Bitcoin by definition are anti-Fed, which he is, but anti-US dollar. Uh, you know, and I think he can have his cake and eat it too, in the sense that what he's saying is anti-Fed in the way it's currently established, and you know, advocating a strong dollar policy 
which, you know, truly, if, if that actually came to fruition, you theoretically could see um, Bitcoin go down. Like that's kind of like, you know, hiking interest rates up or, or the, and the like and advocating a, a strong U.S. dollar policy has typically been, you know, terrible for, for Bitcoin. I, I think he said was that he wanted to stabilize the dollar, not necessarily a strong dollar, but stabilize the dollar. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, that's, that's and that's I wish we, I, I wish we had more time with him to dig into that topic a little bit deeper and yeah, Trace, what he we, means we, by stabilization. We need to arrange a round two, without a doubt, right? When he's in a tour bus, that's uh, that's a better uh, cell reception jurisdiction. <laughs> we will, we will, we will. And, you know, if it, you know, I'd love to get all the candidates on our spaces. But, um, yeah, definitely. I want to talk to him about what he means about, uh, you know, stabilization versus strong yeah. as far as the dollar is concerned. Absolutely. Uh, Trace, so Margo and I, we, 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 have a, we, have a, we, have a, we have a meeting just we're, – we're like, you know, we, we have a meeting just uh, bookended to this, but – this was an incredible, uh, like, thank you so much for, for arranging this for Fintwit. And, and you know, I, I think we really hit the key points. I, what, Morgan and I will pop out, you, with, you know, if the discussion keeps going, I know Scott, Scott, Scott can hang around, and, uh, but I can't thank you enough for, you know, for really setting this up and teeing up the right questions. I think, like, I think one thing you said, and it really resonates, is like, let's get these topics and ideas to the core of the debate. Like, if anything comes out of this Vivek uh, run, it's let's just talk about this and force people force people's backs against the wall to answer and say are you pro, pro or or against Vivek's idea oh 100 percent. and you know that's why i love that he's running like him or hate him or whatever he's bringing conversations to the forefront that i think people uh, or, or candidates right now are, are dancing around and so this forces them to have to answer answer some questions and i think that's a great thing regardless of whether you like him or you don't like him this is what he's bringing to the table and you know i think that 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 should be exalted absolutely 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 especially his commentary on the fed i know he's one of the only uh, candidates who's really taking the fed to to the 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 table for debate especially commenting on like you know stabilizing the dollar i think in terms of that one thing he said was he compared the fed throughout history saying in the 80s and early 90s they really were focusing on stabilizing the dollar and now they're kind of going towards you know wage growth and and other things as as their focal point of of focus so i would have if i could do one thing i would have got him to compare what they did in history to what they're doing now and, and discuss the, the the disparities there but yeah those it was a great conversation and, and tracy thank you so much for having us on the panel to discuss i actually think thank you thank you everybody for joining the conversation thank you to the grizzle crew to be my co-host um and um i will try to get him back for another round thank you everybody for listening in and uh we'll see you on the next one Tracy, thank you so much. And, and I think this should be all prospective presidential candidates should come through the drop the mic spaces and talk energy policy. Talk it deep, whether you're Democrat or Republican, we're here, we're here to engage and understand and, and push the debate forward, right? And, and really, you know, flesh out what people are talking about. This is, this is really what needs to happen. Tracy, thank you. And uh, yeah, fantastic, uh, fantastic conversation on, on all topics, economic. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Have a great rest of your day.
and we'll again see you on the next one. If anybody knows RFK, hit me up on DM because love to have him on. Let's, yeah, that, that's the, you know, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, we'll, we'll take them all on. Let's go. <laughs> Thank you, Tracy.